Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. This is House of Strauss. We are overjoyed to have the most and perhaps only beloved man in politics. Uh, that is one Steve Kornacki. Uh, you know him. You love him. He's the guy uh, in front of the maps with his sleeves rolled up, telling you about the outcomes, not just about political races, but also a variety of things. I mean, it, it, it was sports events at first, and now there are, there are dog shows. I saw pies. We were learning about the various pies, and I was shocked shocked at the strength of apple pie obviously i live in a bubble uh steve how are you doing i'm doing great uh i think i owe you like 50 bucks for that intro that's way too kind way too generous of you but thank you (laughs) and yeah the um for those who didn't know um and i was one of them until about a year ago that that dog show on thanksgiving day on nbc they had me do a couple quick hits for it (laughs) I didn't think twice about it, and it turns out I think 20 million people watched that. I think more people saw me doing that than maybe anything I've ever done. Wow. I mean, again, this is it's always so fun to learn about the secret popularity of something. Uh, Michael Moynihan was just on the podcast, and his mind was blown when I explained the popularity of farriers, uh, the people who clean horse hooves on on youtube and it was just fun to get his reaction to learn that a very just a a a farrier video with a a quite banal title had 71 million views of just watching a horse get its hoof cleaned its hoof i don't know how to say it but yes who knew i'm a horse racing junkie and i definitely wouldn't have guessed that (laughs) at all well, I know about the horse racing. I like that you you follow the literal horse race uh, along with the metaphorical, and I might ask some questions about that later on. But I want to you you are here uh, primarily because I want to discuss your fantastic podcast series, uh, the Revolution, um, and specifically the arc of Newt Gingrich. Um, but. Before we get into that, you mentioned something about recent polling and perhaps not having as busy a political season, and that was just a tease. I need to know what you mean. I am not exactly <laughs> plugged in. What do you mean? Basically, um, <clears throat> pardon me. We um, we spent. You know, I say we. You know, my my sort of team here um, at, at NBC. You know, we spent a lot of this year prepping for 2024, specifically the primary season. And I think early this year, um, we thought it was just going to be trench warfare, week to week. What state is up this week? Maybe this state will vote for DeSantis. This state will vote for Trump. This state Mm. will vote for Tim Scott, whatever. We thought this was going to be potentially reminiscent of, you know, if you think back to like Hillary versus Obama, 2008, maybe a little bit of Hillary versus Sanders 2016, where it goes January to June. And um, the polls were showing that at the start of this year. Trump, it's almost forgotten now how wounded Trump really looked um, early 2023, coming off those 2022 midterms. The most pro Trump, Trump aligned candidates did the worst, cost the Republicans the Senate, kept their House gains to, you know, such a minimum that they spent all of this year 
basically in chaos in the house. Um, and he was paying a real price for that in the polls. And, um, it all changed somewhere around, uh, start of April. And, um, when you look now, the way this is designed in terms of the primaries next year, at least on the Republican side, January 15th, you'll have Iowa, New Hampshire will go eight days later, January 23rd, first week of February, you'll have Nevada. And then, um, I think it's February 23rd, 24th, don't hold me the date. I can't remember it exactly, but it's the yeah. uh, South Carolina primary. Those are the four sort of standalones. And then you get into the big multi-state primary days, like a Super Tuesday. That's in March. But yeah, look, Trump's up 30 points generally in Iowa polling, 30 points generally in New Hampshire polling, more in um, Nevada, more in South Carolina. South Carolina is Nikki Haley's home state. She's getting a ton of uh, attention right now. Um, and I mean, I, I watched... Uh, the uh, South Carolina Clemson, you know, rivalry game was last Saturday yeah. and um, neither team having a great year, actually really bad by Clemson standards. And mm -hmm. um, but obviously it's a full house in South Carolina and Trump is there and he walks out on the field. And I mean, you know, obviously there's sports venues where he would get mercilessly booed. It was just the loudest ovation. I think of the entire game was for him. And I'm thinking to myself, this is the guy Nikki Haley's supposed to beat in this state. Um, and yeah. so I think if Trump runs the table in those in those first four, I think that's it. I think we're on to Trump versus Biden and, and you know, months of kind of trying to gain that one out. Yeah. And there are probably a lot of theories as to why that is. My very apolitical theory is just that in this particular era, it's difficult to unseat the fame or to have a strong enough signal against the fame of somebody who's very famous and who has established their fame pre social media. Um, you know, this has been discussed on this podcast about how maybe Taylor Swift is the youngest person to have become monocultural famous. And I, I think we see that in a way with both presidential candidates. And, um, it is, it just seems like it is hard to really crack that and to have an insurgence uh, against that. I mean, Trump was a big insurgency, obviously, but part of his beachhead into it all was being very famous. And maybe that will be my segue, Steve, to uh, this wonderful uh, podcast series of yours, which I knew was going to be great because – I, I, I doubt anybody demanded it from you, if that makes sense. Um, it was, uh, I, you know, I, we, we had a Tyler Dunn on, he wrote a book about NFL tight ends and he was surprised that I wanted to, um, to read the book. And I said, I want to read the book because I know it's going to be great. When you can tell it's somebody's passion project, when you can tell that, you know, a publisher didn't come to you or didn't come to him and say, write about NFL tight ends you know it's going to be the authentic interest of the individual and you will learn things that you wouldn't learn from somebody who is just trying to do whatever is of the moment. And this is fantastic. I loved it. I felt like I was I was going back in time and it just has this unusual quality of feeling very much of that moment and very much also of this moment, which I think is the thesis behind it all but I, okay so i'm I'll, I'll give you the uh i'll give you the floor after all of my uh the my monologuing why did the 1994 republican revolution the big midterms victory 
Why do you look at that as such an important moment in our contemporary history? Yeah, well, I mean, look, thanks again. Really, That's like to, to hear you and to hear anybody who's heard it have that kind of reaction to it. Obviously, you go into a project like this, that's exactly the response you want to get. That's kind of the dream response. And yeah, it's definitely safe to say nobody at NBC was uh, coming to me saying, hey, let's uh, think of an obscure midterm election. I guess it's not that obscure as midterm elections go, but let's think of a midterm election from 38, 30 years ago and do a multi-episode um, podcast on it. So um, I was fortunate enough that they gave me that latitude and they gave me the support. And and by the way, I mean, I this was my first run at a... Um, you know, a podcast like that, a, a, a you know, story arc over multiple episodes. Mm-hmm. And the thing I wasn't ready for, and I didn't see or hear, I should say, until it came out was the quality of the production, um, how they edited it together, the use of oh. music, the pacing, you know, they'd have me in the, in the, in the, uh, sound booth, um, you know, reading one line, eight different ways. And it got incredibly tedious, you know, recording it. Um, but I could see why, because they had in mind the different possible ways of presenting different sections of this, and they wanted to be ready for yeah. any possible contingency. And I could see how they were mixing and matching. And, and so I just the, the team that was behind it, I just give a ton of credit to because I think they they really gave that thing life that um, that doesn't automatically come to a project like that. Um, but yeah, I you know I, I felt that um, that election stood out. Obviously, I lived through it. I was a young, I was, I was pretty young then. I was uh, uh, <laughs> still a teenager. I'm getting up there in years, so I can rem- remember back 30 years now. It's, it's kind of scary. But what I remember is I, I, I got interested in politics at a very young age, and there were certain things that if you were getting interested in politics in the early 90s or the late 80s, there were certain sort of like bedrock laws of politics that just seemed inviolable. And these are things you needed to know at a foundational level. Um, two of them, um, you know, fell apart basically in the first two elections I followed. The first one I heard, uh, in the early nineties, this is as George Bush senior was gearing up to run for reelection against Bill Clinton uh, and Ross Perot was in that race too, was that the Republicans have a lock on the electoral college. And that's because for five of the last six elections heading into 92, Republicans had won the presidency and it hadn't even been close. You know, Reagan had won 49 states, 44 states. Bush Sr. had won 40. Um, I I remember going to that 92 campaign. Bush, you know, off the Gulf War in 91, his approval rating was over 91 percent. This is like George W. Bush after 9-11 territory. Um, And it was just it was unthinkable in the summer of 91 with that approval rating, with the recent Republican domination, unthinkable that Bush would lose in 92. And then the economy, you know, was kind of taking a nosedive late 91, and his numbers started to fall pretty fast. But I remember well into the spring of 92, the conventional wisdom was strong that Bush was still going to win because Republicans don't lose. And Bill Clinton was scandal plagued. And, you know, my gosh, the country's not going to elect a guy like Bill Clinton and the Republican attack machine, that was a, a term that was in use back then heavily, um, was going to just chew Clinton up and spit him out. And then, lo and behold, you know, Clinton ends up winning in, in not quite a landslide, but a real solid victory in 92. So I watched that one go out the window right away in 92. The other thing that I was told and that everybody was told and just to accept was that the House of Representatives was basically a permanent Democratic, capital D, Democratic Party institution. 
Um, they had controlled it at that point since 1954, four straight decades of continuous control. And not just control. It's like you think of it right now, you think of the House, 222 for the Democrats, two, uh, for the Republicans, 213 for the Democrats. It, literally a change of five seats in the next election. Democrats can get the House back. Republicans were never within five, 10, 15, 20s. They were never even over 200 seats in all that you know 40, uh, 40 year period. Um, as I said, they had some massive landslides at the presidential level. Nixon got 49 states in 72, never translated into House games against uh, Democrats just absolutely dominated in the House. And the idea that Republicans could even get within striking distance was kind of fanciful. The idea they'd actually ever have control of it in the foreseeable future. Nobody talked about as, as a realistic thing. And I just remember this series of events that played out. In Clinton's first two years, um, all sorts of political missteps on his end, um, Democrats having total control, executive, legislative branches, trying to move on an ambitious agenda that had been, you know, pent up for years, a backlash, you know, stirring to that, a a backlash that involved Hillary Clinton, who at that point was the most sort of, you know, policy-centered first lady in American history. Bill Clinton tasked her with, uh, you know, with overhauling the healthcare system. And it, you knew by the time the, the midterms were coming in 94, it was going to be a very good night for Republicans. And the talk was, OK, the Senate, they needed I think they needed seven seats in the Senate to get control. It was like, OK, the Senate's within reach for them. And you can see that happen tonight. And they may hit 200 seats in the House. It may be that good of a midterm. And I just remember watching it. And it, I, I ended up interviewing Newt for sort of a bonus episode of this um yeah. of this series. He didn't participate at first. He heard it, then he wanted to. So, um, and when I talked to him, he likened election night 94 to election night 2016, the election of Donald Trump, just in yeah. terms of the shock, how nobody saw it coming. And um, I, it, it's a great parallel because I remember just watching the coverage, election night 94, and these anchors, these pundits, everybody, all of official Washington is looking at these results and saying this was never supposed to happen. This was never supposed to happen. I can't believe this. Newt and the Republicans are going to have control. Newt Gingrich is going to be the Speaker of the House. This is, you know, um, very similar to the reactions and to the people who remember watching election night 2016. I think there's a there's a really good parallel there. I think there is too. And I mean, Gingrich, when you talk to him, talked about how confident he was versus the conventional wisdom and how he expected that outcome. Now with Gingrich, it's almost like how economists have predicted eight of the last two recessions. He's always confident, it seems. I think he was just coming off the 2022 midterms where he was confident, but those did not go the way Republicans had expected or hoped for them uh, to go. But I love the found items of media of that era and the production that you mentioned with the music and uh, the shock of the newscasters and Brokaw and, you know, like, oh, you might want to crawl into a hole if you're a democratic operative, but it's a night to remember. And it's uh, it's that whole that the, the, the atmospherics of it all. And that's one of the things that you lose as time goes forward is the sense of surprise. It's the, the creeping determinism comes in later on where whatever happened felt like it was expected to happen. And so it's so it's so fun to return to that time and that time and place where where it's shocking. Now, I, I'm obsessed with all these things. I'm obsessed with what endures historically and why do certain things 
stick and why were they influential, but not other things? You know, it's I um it's like it's one of the reasons I love uh Chuck Klosterman's book on the 1990s is that you take a look at a lot of this stuff. He oddly enough focuses a lot on Perot in that book. Uh mm. I think because his mind is almost uh so idiosyncratic that he's looking for things that maybe um weren't influential and that we forgot. It's interesting to me that Gingrich is regarded as so influential because as you detail in the podcast, he flamed out. It was short lived. Um, he was out with him, what, four years? Um, yeah. Whatever sort of revolutionary mandate uh, that propelled him to seize power worked against him and he lost it all. So, how could something that was so short lived? means so much historically uh it almost seems incongruous and yet i feel like there's an answer there yeah it's actually it's it's one of the big reasons i wanted to do this because it was you know what you're always looking for um in in history especially in modern history is there's there's you reach some point where you've enough years have passed that you have enough perspective to sort of make judgments about what it means or what it didn't mean and did it live up to this promise and did it not live up to that promise and that was what interested me too, because it just as I said that the the conventional wisdom right up until you know seven eight p.m. on November eighth nineteen ninety four was the Democrats would you know run the House for decades to come. Um, it reversed that quickly, and within twenty four hours, a whole new future was being confidently predicted, not just by Republicans, by the press. Um, by the same folks who had been shocked and caught off guard, now that they had seen what they regarded as the impossible happen, they were starting to play it out. And where they placed 1994 in the moment, where everybody, almost everybody, this would include Democrats, some Democrats, placed 1994 in the moment was, oh, wait, this is a culmination of a 30-year story that we've kind of missed. And it starts with Barry Goldwater, 1964. That's you know, the conservative grassroots, you know, small government, you know, anti-government, anti-tax um, wing of the party actually gets control. And, you know, you don't get a moderate like Eisenhower. You don't get a moderate. Nixon in 60 was a moderate. You don't get that. You get a genuine Mr. Conservative. That's what they call Barry Goldwater. And um, and he gets slaughtered. He gets slaughtered by LBJ. And civil rights had a, had a, a big deal to do with that. But that was the first sort of warning shot that, hey, the, the, the Republican Party was transforming here and the Goldwater wing had energy. And then you go 16 years later and they break through. They nominate Reagan. Reagan got his start in politics in the fall of 64. The Goldwater campaign bought television time and they thought, you know what? Goldwater's not a great speaker. You know who he is? Ronald Reagan. Mm. So they gave Reagan the time and it was called it. The, the speech was called the time for choosing and Reagan delivered on national television Two years later, he was elected governor of California. And in 1980, Reagan gets elected president. So now you've gone from being able to nominate a conservative candidate but lose badly. Now in 1980, and again, it, right up until the week before the election, maybe even election day itself, the thought was Reagan's way too conservative. You know, Jimmy Carter's deeply unpopular. The economy's terrible. Inflation's through the roof. But uh, Reagan's a, a, a bridge too far for most Americans. Well, he wasn't. He won in a landslide. And so conservatives now have won the presidency. And 14 years later, as I say, 94, now conservatives, and that's that's what this was. This was a, a Gingrich had reshaped 
the um, the makeup of the House Republican Conference, um, and he had made it ideologically conservative. He'd brought in, he'd attracted, he'd recruited all these candidates who got in through the 80s and into the early 90s, and then in hordes they came in in 94 in the revolution, um, who were deeply, deeply conservative and committed to, you know, a, a sort of Gingrich, Reagan-style, you know, program. And the conventional wisdom immediately set in that, like, oh, this is a 30-year rising tide. This thing just began with Goldwater, and it's kind of, you know, fits and start, fits and starts. But, like, here we are 30 years later, and they've proven they can win the White House in a landslide. They've done it several times. Now they got the House. Now they got the Senate. And Bill Clinton is, is a goner. You know, he's going to be up for re-election in 96. Look at this. This is what the country thinks of Bill Clinton. He's, you know, so there's going to be a conservative Republican president who comes in in 96. And suddenly it's it's the conservative. It's the for the foreseeable future. The expectation is this is going to be top to bottom conservative rule in this country. Republican president, Republican House, Republican Senate. They're going to roll back great, uh, great society programs. They're going to roll back the, the, the size of government, the scope of government. This country, we, this is what the media seem to be concluding, <clears throat> we've missed it. This country is fundamentally conservative, and it's really asserting itself now. And it's, why would it stop now? And um, so it's interesting because that's not what happened, obviously, in the, in the three decades since. And as you say, Gingrich, it was a very rocky tenure. His uh, poll numbers were way upside down even before he took office in January 95. Um, he brought a lot of that on himself. Um, there was a coup against him, a coup attempt by Republicans in 1997. He saved that one off. But then after the 98 midterms, they were a disaster for Republicans and he was gone. Um, so why does the story linger? Um, it lingers because the legacy was different than what we all expected. And I'm sure different mm. than what Gingrich expected. And the legacy was, it is, I believe, the polarization that we're now living with, um, the polarization and really the tribalism that we're now living with. Because I, I think Gingrich, what he did and achieved politically, especially in flipping the House, um, was he helped to set in motion the realignment of our politics that took shape in the 90s and we've been living with ever since. The red state, I, I, you know, I did a book called The Red and the Blue, and this is, this is you know, a lot of the podcast is drawn from that, but um, you know, I, I tell people, if you had said before the year 2000, I'm from a red state, I'm from a blue state, it would have meant nothing to anybody. Red and blue meant nothing politically in terms of partisan alignment. Um, since then, they've meant everything. It's, just, it's, it's an accident of history yeah. that every network had had red for the Republicans, mm -hmm. blue for the Democrats in election night 2000. And then we stare at the ma map huh. for 40 days while they sorted Florida out. But when you looked at that map in 2000, what you saw was you saw the growth of the Republican Party in the South, um, and now the dominance by that point of the Republican Party in the South. That was a change over the, you know, three to four decades in the making. But the other thing that you saw was that what Gingrich said in motion was, well, he brought that form of Republicanism to power in Congress. It engendered a backlash. And that is a backlash that was centered in the suburbs, was centered among college educated. Um, it was centered among folks who had been voting Republican. They were moderate Republicans uh, on pocketbook issues. They didn't really like the idea of high taxes. They didn't really like the idea of big government programs. Um, but socially, culturally, they were moderate. They were really liberal. And in their home states, in places like Massachusetts, places like New Jersey, places like Illinois, 
the Republicans reflected that kind of sensibility. A Bill Weld in Massachusetts mm. reflected that sensibility. A Tom Kane in New Jersey, who's the governor in the, in the 1980s, um, there, hugely popular, reflected that sensibility. And so Republicans in those states kind of, that's what they saw. They saw themselves reflected in those leaders. They kept voting Republican. Well, Newt Gingrich becomes a Speaker of the House. Republicans take control of the House. They go to war with Bill Clinton. In 1995, the big issue is over Medicare, but there's all sorts of other wars in there, too. Some of them touch on you know cultural grounds. Um, that's the Bill Clinton impeachment in 1998. And um, basically, the suburbs decide, no, this is this National Republican Party. This isn't new to us. This isn't us. This is Southern. This is infused with evangelical Christianity. Mm. This is people who love guns way too much. This is, yeah, this is New Gingrich. This isn't us. And they began voting Democratic. And that's, that's the suburban realignment that really kicked off in the late 90s. Um, you see it in that 2000 map. And that, that, those two trends have just accelerated since 2000, where you know the, the whites with a college degree, we're always talking about is this distinct, it's a huge group, obviously, politically, um, that used to be a, a, repo, a core Republican group. It's now a core Democratic group, double-digit Democratic group. If Joe Biden gets reelected, it's because he's going to run up huge numbers with them. And at the other end of the spectrum, um, blue-collar, uh, whites without a college degree, blue-collar whites, whatever you want to call them as a group, again, they're even bigger as a share of the population. That had been a core Democratic group. And, and for similar reasons, um, cultural issues, culture war issues, um, they became, they started to look at the National Democratic Party, dominated by these culturally liberal suburbanites who they kind of thought looked down on them. And I think that's, mm. so it's, it's two groups kind of forming and aligning themselves against each other. And that's red yeah. and blue America. And I think that's what, I think Gingrich really believed that this was, a, there was a 60% conservative Republican majority in the country. Um, he was wrong. Um, there's, there's, it's about 50, 50 and, and we yeah. have been living in a 50, 50 country, give or take ever since. And I think that's his legacy was really being a key figure in bringing that about. Yeah. If he was correct, um, in his interpretation, he might've stayed in power. Uh, a lot of things happen though. I mean, you've characterized it. The realignment happens there as you're framing it, but you also characterize it as the first nationalized midterm election, which uh, that has been set in motion and continued. Um, I hadn't really thought about it too much, but I also think in a weird way, it saved Bill Clinton's presidency and it killed it as an ideological project. Um, and that's another odd outcome of it, where he got such a strong signal that he was going about things the wrong way and being painted as a liberal to many people that he aggressively moderated and stole certain ideas uh, from the contract with America even. Um, I mean, I don't think he stole ideas. I shouldn't say it like that. But he was even saying after the drubbing that there was some there, there were aspects of the contract that he liked, which I didn't mm -hmm. know until listening to your podcast. And it's a strange thing looking back on Clinton because Clinton, in the end, I think, um, was a popular leader but it almost feels as though he doesn't have any kind of political legacy. And he's just a guy that people have an opinion on. And I'm sure somebody could say, no, it was this or that legacy or NAFTA or something. But 
like that's an interesting outcome of it too in this way that certain things are influential in history and certain things aren't that reagan has a very ideological legacy but bill clinton i mean it, do you think that there's something to my interpretation of events that it it saved clinton by compelling him to moderate which helped him win in 96 overwhelmingly but it also led him to become almost gun shy as far as being ambitious and it it clipped his wings as it were yeah, I think it definitely saved him. Um, and that was something, you know, he was able to set himself up as, hey, I'm the check against these, you know, mm. radical Republicans, as he would say, you know, his, his folks would say, it, uh, who suddenly, you know, run the Congress. You don't want him running everything. You want a check there. And I'm that check. And he, the, the, the big defining fight of 1995, that's the first year of the Republican Congress, was over Medicare, uh, Medicare funding. And um, it, it's, it's very technical. It was basically Republicans wanted to slow the growth of it. And the Democrats said, this is a, they want to cut, you know, Medicare. And Gingrich had made, you know, he had his, did this a number of times, you know, his, his rhetoric would get away from him sometimes. And he was given a speech once and he offhandedly talked about letting Medicare wither on the vine. And that just caused a huge, a huge uproar. So Clinton portrayed himself as the defender of the social safety net in 1995, that here was this incredibly ambitious conservative Republican Congress that wanted to roll back key aspects of the great society that were actually popular and that he, Bill Clinton, would defend them. And, and that politically, I think he was right, because that's that's that gets at one of the sort of core contradictions of, of the American voter. Right. Like, I think yeah. conceptually, the voter is anti-government. Conceptually, the voter you know doesn't want big government, doesn't want big taxes, but conceptually, the gov- the uh, the American voter wants Social Security, wants Medicare, the most expensive government program. So, you know, there was a there was a tension there, and in '94, the Gingrich folks were able to tap into one side of it, and in '96, Bill Clinton was able to tap into the other side of it. But I think bigger picture, Clinton's an interesting character too, because I you could argue it 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 clipped his wings, or you could also argue that it brought him back to where he always wanted to be and where he was always most comfortable. And he, you know, again, this is a guy, um, who grew up, you know, his, his, his story, his preferred story is he grew up in a little town called Hope, Arkansas, but where he really grew up was mm. Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is, you know, a, a den of, uh, at the time of, you know, gambling and drinking. And they got the track Oaklawn park there. His mother loved the horse races at, uh, at Oaklawn. And, um, so he got the, that's the world he comes from. But then he also, you know, went to Georgetown, went to Yale, had the Rhodes Scholarship and made all these friendships at, at, you know, at the age of 20 or so, 2025, with the folks who would become the future leaders of the Democratic Party and all these liberal think tanks. And um, so he impressed them. They always thought he was kind of, you know, one of their their own. But at the same time, he went back to Arkansas. And, and this is a time when you know, Democrats could still win Arkansas. They outnumbered Republicans, but Arkansas was also going to vote for Ronald Reagan, you know, and and so Clinton was navigating. You just, you don't see this in our politics anymore, Yeah, where here was a Democrat, the idea of a Democrat in Arkansas right now, you'd have to be so far to the right politically, you would be unviable as a, as a national Democratic candidate to have any chance of success in Arkansas. Back then you could. So what Clinton understood were the, what those fault lines were that were making, you know, that were costing Democrats the chance to win Arkansas in a presidential race, but that were allowing him to win the governor's races uh, in Arkansas to become a major political figure there. He understood intuitively 
where those where those fault lines were, where those tripwires were. Um, some of it was a hard lesson. He lost the governorship at one point, had to win it back. But he brought those instincts to Washington in 1992. And that was the when I said there was this idea of a Republican lock on the Electoral College. Clinton broke it in 92 by running as a genuine centrist. And, and you know, the ads would say it was Bill Clinton and Al Gore. And Al Gore also was, you know, Al Gore was not the guy out there talking so much. I mean, he was doing some environmental stuff, but he had a profile yeah. of this hawkish, you know, uh, pro-national defense, um, um, hawkish foreign policy, centrist Democrat. And they ran, the, the ads would say, Bill Clinton and Al Gore, they are a different kind of Democrat. And they embraced that label. Um, he was for the death penalty, you know, Bill Clinton was. He chose a bunch of symbolic issues and maybe not so symbolic issues. He promised to cut middle class taxes. He didn't actually do that. Um, but um, he ran as a moderate. He ran as a centrist. And post and what happened, he gets there in 93, gets elected, and he's suddenly facing the permanent Democratic Congress, which is dominated by northern liberals and a very heavily Democratic Senate. And they've been dealing for 12 years with Reagan and Bush. They've got a huge wish list they want to tick through. Yeah. And he, I think, deferred to them and they kind of steered the ship. And what came across to people was, oh, this this Clinton and the Democrats are just pushing for some major, major you know, growth in government here. They raised tax. They did raise taxes in 93. And and that was the backlash. And I think Clinton immediately recognized, yeah, I um, I built my career distancing myself from the D.C. version of the Democratic Party. And I'm going to reclaim my presidency by reestablishing that distance. I'm, and this was Dick, Dick Morris was his advisor. He called it triangulation. It was, you know, you got the, yeah. the, the, the idea was, you know, you get the extreme Republicans here and the big government Democrats here. And then here's Bill Clinton as the moderating force between the two of them. So that's what he kind of sold himself as, you know, going forward. And yeah, what's the lasting legacy of the of the Clinton presidency? Well, I do think it in the same way as I just said with Gingrich and the um, uh, playing a role in that, um, you know, the rise of tribalism and, and, and um, red and blue, I, I think Clinton did, too, you know, through part of it had to do with the role his wife played in the administration. That was so revolutionary. Um, part of it had to do with the impeachment. Um, in the impeachment, in the, the whole debate over, um, you know, what's a, what's private, what's public, is it okay to lie about something like this? And um, you know, it's it, Clinton had a way of connecting with culturally moderate to conservative voters on some issues, but there was also that side of Bill Clinton who had the feminist wife who had basically, for all intents and purposes, dodged the Vietnam draft who smoked pot mm -hmm. but didn't inhale. Remember, that was, his, mm -hmm. that was his line in 92. And that version of Bill Clinton came through a lot, too. And the, the reaction against that um, is, is what helped, I think, create Red America in those, in those working class areas. Maybe his legacy is our first boomer president. I, I'm trying to find something all-encompassing in, all right there. Um, it's... It's just, it's interesting. I guess Gingrich almost feels a little bit like a blip in history in the sense of, not a blip. I guess what I'm saying is a historic anomaly is the person who gets that job typically doesn't have a vision of the job, it seems. They, they get that job because they like being a wheeler dealer, because they like being in power. 
Um, I know that you've done uh, a lot of work talking about Nancy Pelosi. She seems, she seems to be somebody who's been very clever and very smart about uh, remaining in power and remaining on top. But that doesn't exactly come with this idea of I am part of a revolution and I am going to implement my vision and I am going to change the country. Uh, I, I think when you had your roundtable discussion with um, journalists, and I think Pod Horitz was was there, and he was talking about how it almost seemed like Gingrich was a strategist who had just happened into this role, which might help explain why it was so short lived. But maybe that that's one of the reasons why so much happened in such a short period of time was that this is not usually the mandate or what's going on when it comes to the person who's in that position uh, in the Congress. Yeah. And that's why I, I intentionally, you know, I feel at least in the podcast, um, I was more interested in the 16 years leading up to 1994 than in the four years that came after it, the actual tenure yeah. as speaker. Um, because I think it was the achievement of breaking the permanent Democratic majority. It was the achievement of just totally reconstituting the House Republican Conference, um, essentially clearing out, you know, some of this, you know, through his, you know, some of this just by happenstance, but some of this by, you know, um, the force of his, uh, uh, of his sort of political strength, forcing out the old moderate establishment, more moderate establishment, and bringing in this army of new, you know, conservative members, and in you know, getting them on the same page tactically, um, I think it dramatically, dramatically changed. Before Republicans even had majority in '94, it dramatically changed the way Congress operated, the way Republicans in the minority saw themselves, the way they saw their mission, the way they saw their task. Um, it was about making Republicans, but also everybody, eventually think more in terms of media. Um, that, you know, what's happening yes. in this chamber, the House is not just happening in this chamber. You know, if you're addressing, you know, the House, uh, if you have the uh, the podium and you're addressing a few dozen colleagues in the House, you are. But you're also addressing the C-SPAN camera. And there actually yeah. are people watching on C-SPAN. And, and I think it was he recognized that he saw the value in that he planned around that he got others to buy in on that. And and I mean, that, again, like that. C-SPAN in the 1980s. I mean, I, I love C-SPAN. It was a great, great innovation. But, you know, that's that's just the very beginning of the, the massive change in the media landscape. But Newt anticipated that kind of change. And I think that's part of his legacy, too. Let's talk about that, because that also made an impression on me. It's hard to envision C-SPAN like that, by the way, as this revolutionary technology that completely changes how these public officials operate because growing up i i conceptualized c-span as a place where an author with a bad haircut gives a talk about his book uh with some low resolution camera uh but no it was it totally changed the game and it's just funny how media technology it allows almost a jump in um in status above you know, above whatever the establishment is. And if you harness it, suddenly you're more important. And in a way, that story is particular to that time, but it doesn't go away. I mean, people were making the connections between Gingrich and, and Trump, for instance, but I was thinking you could make an analogy to AOC. I mean, I know that AOC probably never stood on the battlefield of Verdun and, you know, uh, envisioned her 
imprint on history in quite the way Newt Gingrich did, but this is somebody who took the social media platform and just through that became a very high status, uh, high status member of the house. And uh, maybe we can just get into that. I'm not really giving you a good question or a launching pad for it. I, I just found it so interesting that that was particular to that time, but also this is something that we're seeing repeat itself as a phenomenon. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think what Gingrich, what Gingrich saw strategically, um, and again, it's, it's, it, it is primitive compared to where it's gone, and it, that has everything to do with social media, internet, iPhones, all that stuff, none of which was in play, obviously, in, in the 1980s as Gingrich was, was sort of climbing, uh, beginning his climb. Um, but what he recognized was, look, look, like, he got elected in 1978 on his third try, and he came in there telling Republicans, I'm going to lead you to the majority. And these are Republicans who, for a quarter century at that point, had known nothing but you know minority status, not even close, majority not even conceivable. And they just laughed at him. You know, who, who is this guy? And he got a small band uh, of kind of true believers around him, and they just started slowly building. And, and he recognized, as we say, C-SPAN, the cameras came in, the House allowed the cameras in at the start of 1979. And that's just coincidentally, Gingrich was sworn in in January of 1979. Mm. So it timed perfectly with his arrival. And he believed and recognized that, look, he's going to have more luck. His ability to get the attention of the leaders, the decision makers in his own party um, and in general in American politics in Washington was not going to come from serving 20 years on a committee, slowly building his way up, you know, and maybe becoming the ranking minority member and having a line to the White House in, you know, uh, 1998. He didn't look at it that way. He said, he, he looked at it as, I have to work outside this system. And his interest mm-hmm. was always, and he said this when I interviewed him too, but I mean, yes, he's, he's somebody I think, you could define him as a conservative, but he's a conservative who is always in search of the populist nerve in American politics. Um, you know, somebody who sees that there's, he looks for the issues where he believes there's, a majority of the country that if they just know about it, if they just see it, they're going to instinctively dislike the establishment in Washington, see it as, you know, these arrogant, fat politicians, you know, so he right away when he gets there in, in 1978, he's uh, 79, he's, he sees an example of this. And it's a, a congressman from Detroit who's been, you know, found guilty of this uh, in federal charges of this kickback scheme. Uh, Charlie Diggs was his name. He's appealing the, uh, the verdict, but he's facing federal prison time. And sort of the code of the House at that point was, you know, you kind of just let this let this guy deal with it. Um, he says he's going to sort it out in the appeal. And he had never done anything to anger any of his Democratic colleagues, really. So he was just kind of part of the club. And, you know, the code of the club was, um, we're not going to bother you here. And if the, if the appeal doesn't work and you go to prison, you lose your seat. Sorry. But um, we're not going to preempt anything here. And Gingrich recognized right away that like, that's, that's going to look very different outside this chamber if people start hearing about this. And so that's what he did. He put a motion on the floor to expel Charlie Diggs and he got media attention. Um, cause this was something, this was, this was not previously a common thing to see happen. And here was Gingrich, a freshman member doing this, um, and he basically uses the media to shame his party's leadership into go into backing him on it. 
Um, because mm. how can you explain this? It, it looks, you know, it looks it, it, he, what he said specifically, he found he waited until um, Diggs voted on a tax bill. And so he could make the argument that they, you know, the Democratic Congress is letting this man vote on how to spend and waste your tax dollars. This man who has been convicted of corruption, has been convicted in a kickback scheme, this corrupt congressman from the corrupt Democratic machine in Detroit, he's wasting your taxpayer dollars. They're letting him get away with it. We want to stop it. That's the message he pushed. And he kind of shamed Republicans into going along with it. They, they mostly, though, eventually did. There was an expulsion vote. It didn't succeed, but it did get majority Republican support. And that was something it just this was this was a freshman. This was six months into his term when that expulsion yeah. vote comes up. I mean, that's that was a warning shot from him. And there were so many more to come. But what he recognized was, um, you know, through C-SPAN and through other means, you could you could hit these populist nerves and it would force change on the inside. It would force them to take you seriously among, and it had this huge other ripple effects as well. And we talked to congressmen, you know, former congressmen doing the, doing the uh, podcast too, who, um, you know, who said like they recognized that Gingrich was a real thing when they'd be back home in their district in, you know, California or wherever, and people would come up to them and they'd ask, Oh, you, you're in the Congress yeah. with Newt. Yeah, he's a <laughs> random guy from Georgia, but they know him from C-SPAN. Yeah. Oh, I love the um, the story about uh, one of Gingrich's young Turk allies, uh, Bob Walker, uh, cool. that, that Jack Kemp was, I think, what was it, Puerto Rico, and a woman comes up, and Jack Kemp, for those who do not know, was a very famous politician and former football player, uh, and she asked him, do you know Bob Walker? And just totally must have scrambled these guys who were used to a certain hierarchy, a certain order where you gain status um, through your seniority. And suddenly this revolutionary force has harnessed the new media to just leapfrog you in status um, and push certain buttons that you didn't even know that you didn't even know were there. I knew about none of it until listening to your podcast. And I, I just found that, I found that amusing and also just so interesting how there are these opportunities that can be seized um, and created by technology that can completely, completely reshuffle things. Yeah, no, and you're right. It foreshadows today completely. Um, and, and to just put it in some perspective, it's like, you know, yeah, he built a following on C-SPAN. C-SPAN doesn't keep re ratings. Nielsen never really tracked it. So you're never sure quite how many people were watching. It wasn't zero, but it wasn't 20 million either. Um, but it was an, it was something like it, it was more exposure than the minority party in the house and especially a backbench, you know, young minority member of the house was going to get minority party member was ever going to get through the traditional, you know, media gatekeepers at that time. And so, yeah, you would get people who were finding, you know, and cable was exploding. You know, the eighties was the explosion of cable as an cable television as an institution here. Um, and C-SPAN came free with every every time you hooked up cable in a house, C-SPAN was part of the package because Brian Lamb, the founder of C-SPAN, got the cable industry to underwrite it. And it was part of the pitch, you know, because a lot of cities, a lot of towns, you know, you had to get approval from the city, approval from the town to bring the cable wires in and get cable TV. And part of the pitch was, hey, you know, this isn't just uh, this isn't just, uh, you know. Um, the vast wasteland that, that uh, mm -hmm. uh, Newton Minow once called television. This is a public service. 
you can watch your government in work uh, in, in action um, on cable television. So this was part of the pitch too. And people were finding the channel and, you know, Newt found opportunities on there basically on an almost nightly basis. Um, it, it's, it, it, you know, there were no, there was no Sean Hannity show. There was no uh, uh, Laura Ingram show, anything like that. There's no cable news in that sense. Um, but you might be scrolling through your, your new cable dial at uh, nine o'clock at night and there's Newt Gingrich just holding court in an empty house chamber. And it's a talk show. He's just, he's just given you an hour of his take on the day, uh, on the big headlines, on how he thinks about politics. And it, it would be a cable talk show today. Um, but he, he built a following through doing things like that. And now you see everybody, not everybody, you see so many who come to Congress and they don't even need a, a C-SPAN yeah. for it. They just, they just need their iPhone. Yeah, they're not, and they're not doing politics. They're they're there to make the speech. Effectively, um, they're there to get on TV, and that's become that's become this whole other incentive structure that that is now uh, come about that is totally different to the ways uh, things were done. Um, you know, it's it, it's interesting to me um, the way politicians overread their mandate. And how they all do it. It seems um, it, it, they they never underread it. Uh, victory is the seeds for defeat. It's it's odd because it, you know coming from the sports perspective, winning is just good. It, you know you learn things from certain losses. That's it's a bit of a cope when it happens. You can learn things. Michael Jordan by getting his ass kicked by the Pistons learned certain things, but. You know, the Pistons had never been there, then he just would have probably won sooner. And you gain confidence from winning, you gain status, and winning helps you win more. Um, the thermostatic nature of politics is so interesting to me how uh, this keeps on happening. Why do you think it's so? Why do politicians in victory the way Newt Gingrich did, the way that so many do, why do they overread their triumph? You know, it's interesting. I get why Gingrich did for the reasons, you know, we've talked about. It was the first time in 40 years and it legitimately was seen as impossible what he pulled off. So I could see how in that moment, this guy who who came in in 70, the 78 election, laughed at by even his own party. I think, you know, Dick Cheney was a big player in House Republican politics in the 1980s. There's a, there's a whole alternate history scenario where Dick Cheney becomes the first House Republican mm. speaker, never becomes vice president. That's a whole other thing. But Dick Cheney, you know, called him a pest. Um, they had disdain for him, the, the Republican leadership um, uh, in the House, the existing Republican establishment. Um, they laughed at him when he said, I'll get you to the majority someday. And he just worked his way up through the wilderness and kept kind of as we say, you know, going around all the, the, the traditional media, um, building these populist uproars, doing things in the House confrontationally that just weren't done before. And Republicans start to look at it and say, geez, this actually isn't that bad. I wish we were doing more of this. And he makes it to the top of the mountain in 94. And I could get how it, it, from that standpoint, it, you do buy into the idea that he, Gingrich, has completed what Goldwater started in defeat in 64 and now there really is, this really is a conservative country. The Bill Clinton election in 92 really is this aberration, and Perot has something to do with it. Clinton only got 43% of the vote, and this really is a conservative country. And now, finally, it's going to move in a conservative direction policy. But I could see why he would say that in 94. But again, when I, when I talk about the real legacy of 94 being the tribalism, being the polarization, and being the red and the blue, what's now the norm is, 
is yeah. one party gets full control and it lasts for exactly two years and it gets yanked away yeah. in the midterm election. And so, you know, I, I remember when Obama came in in 08, and if you remember, I mean, a massive House majority, massive yeah. Senate majority. You know, they had the 60, 60 seats there at one point in the Senate. Huge, huge ambitious, ambitious agenda. I, I just, my entire point of reference when Obama came in was, enjoy this while it lasts, folks, because, uh, Democrats, because in two years, what happened in 94 is going to happen again. That's just the new yeah. nature of our poll. And it did. And it happened in 2018. And it happened to a lesser degree in 2022. But it's just, this is, nobody can keep full control of the government for more than mm. two years anymore. And um, Karl Rove's 40-year Republican majority, remember, that was a, a big prediction. Yeah. The Democrats took Obama's victory in 2012 to be the triumph of the coalition of the uh, the, the emerging yeah, the, Democratic the, majority. That yeah, was the book the, they all referenced. And it just, it, it, none of, so I, I less and less understand how they do it now, because modern history, the story post-94, the three decades since 94 is, you know, um, there's the, one party breaks through in an election, and then there's a big reaction from the other side and then the other mm. side breaks through and there's a big uh, reaction from this side and we've just been kind of going back and forth um kind of playing between the 40 yard lines ever since yeah it's a great it's a great point that at that moment in history if you're if you're new you're going to think i mean basically you, you can realize your vision everybody's telling you that it was impossible then you do it and to what you're saying the you know, the homeostasis is is kind of one of uh, consistent control. So it would have seemed like you had finally, uh, in the way that Seinfeld talked about, um, you know, flipping over a refrigerator as a metaphor for a breakup, that you had finally flipped the refrigerator over and that was done. Um, yeah, I could definitely see that. I wonder, though, if we have reached a certain... I don't know if I want to call it a holding pattern, but just a, a, a way things are. Uh, I'll throw this at you. I wonder if I could make the case that the 2022 midterm result was as important or uh, on the level of importance as 94. And now I'm going to assume this is like when you ask Bill Belichick of a great defensive player might be as good as Lawrence Taylor. He always, you know, he always scoffs uh, when he gets such a question. But I, you know, I feel like something was revealed in 2022. I mean, you, I doubt you were shocked by the result of 2022 because I listened to you on on the commentary podcast talking about the polling that might uh, presage it. So you you might not have been surprised, but it was completely surprising to a lot of people. I mean, in The New Yorker, they were hand-wringing about uh, the the emerging uh, Republican conquest, and it didn't so much work out that way. Um, and, you know, they got a narrow majority in the, in the House, but Senate didn't work out for them, and it sort of revealed that I think culturally it seems like the mainstream right now is with the Democrats. Uh, what what do you make of that? Do you make do you think the 2022 midterms? I'll I'll throw it out at you like this: Is it the most important midterm election since '94? Is it on the level of '94, or am I just overreading prisoner of the moment that that's a massive election? Well, ask me in 30 years, and I'll have a good answer for you. But <laughs> I mean, I actually, you're the guy with the maps. You can't see the future. I mean, come on. My, my read from this standpoint on 22 is that it revealed a couple things. Um, number one, it was, it was played out under 
in modern times, totally unprecedented circumstances. And that is that the defeated former president um, was a central character, was the central character, um, was still effectively acting as the leader of his party, was picking candidates and daring party leaders to, uh, you know, put somebody else up and party leaders didn't dare do that. Um, When you think of past the modern one-term presidents, George Bush Sr. lost in 92, and you barely heard a word from him. His sons both ran in 94, but he really, you know, that was that was it in terms of him as a as a political force. Jimmy Carter got drummed out in 1980, and then, you know, he's building houses in, in, in 1982. Um, Trump made it clear from the minute he left he wanted to get it back. And um, so he loomed large. He's obviously an incredibly polarizing figure. He loomed unusually large unprecedentedly large for a former president in the midterm election, and especially with the events of January 6th, and especially with the fact that so many major races featured candidates who Trump himself recruited or endorsed and who echoed everything Trump was saying about 2020, I think made that election a referendum, unlike every other midterm where it's a referendum on the the sitting president, I think it made it as much, if not more, a referendum on Trump, the former president and would-be future president, than we'd seen before. Um, and, and again, that's why when I, I said earlier, when, when, when the result came in as it came in, it, it felt like, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened, but it felt like the wind was out of Trump's sails. And, you know, it, it was DeSantis time. He got 60% in Florida, and we had polls earlier this year that actually had DeSantis ahead of Trump. And um, so from that standpoint, if that had held, and I leave open the possibility that the primary season will end up containing a surprise and, and, you know, Trump will get beaten. And if that were to happen, I think we would, you know, you could look at the 2022 midterm as a, um, um, as a clear warning sign. Um, for that matter, if Trump gets nominated and, you know, Biden has a 35% approval rating on election day and still wins 2022 mm. will have been a harbinger of that. But, um, you know, I, the problem I think in, in saying, for me right now in ascribing huge significance to 22 is that here we are entering 24 and I think it's pretty clear Trump's political position has improved, has strengthened throughout 2023. It certainly has in the Republican Party. There's as many polls, there's probably more polls now nationally showing Trump ahead of Biden than showing Biden ahead of Trump. There wasn't a single poll, and I mean a single poll in 2019 or 2020 that ever had Trump ahead of Biden. Um, the only question in 2019 and 2020 was, is there some scenario where Trump can get this through the Electoral College because he's obviously going to lose the popular vote? Well, you look at the polls right now, and I, I, I think there's a scenario not just where Trump wins in 2024, but where he wins the popular vote in 2024. That's what the polls are telling us right now. So if something like that were to happen, then I, I think we would look back at 22 and we would say, Okay, there's something very specific about Trump himself, Trump, the personality, Trump, the force of personality himself that lands a certain way with a certain type of voter that brings a certain type of voter out. And that is absolutely, completely inimitable. All of these candidates in 2022, Trump picked who tried to act like Trump, who tried to sound like Trump, never played with voters the way Trump himself played with it. So they all failed. Um, But Trump himself is distinct. And, and, and has strengths that they just never could have. That's, I think if he, if he comes back and wins, I think that's what we would say. And we would look at 2022 and we'd say, you know, um, the Trump imitators 
can't do it, but Trump himself can. And, and I think in that case, the lesson of 22 would be, would be not so huge. You're making great points uh, the, that it wasn't symbolic of the end of the Trump era based on how things have gone might diminish it as a uh, as a historical fulcrum. But I'm just going to make the case for 2022 uh, being a very significant election um, while conceding that you, you, you've done a great argument against it. One would be what you've termed 1994 as the nationalization uh, of politics midterm, I would call 2022 the culturalization because typically, according to my understanding, these elections are decided by the economy. If that had been the case in 2022, then the Democrats would have been absolutely screwed with the way inflation had gone um, with this myriad of other factors. But yet, Dobbs, uh, the Dobbs decision, abortion uh, on the forefront, that seemed to be uh, very decisive. That seems to be this big, this big shift. And you could maybe throw Trump in there as just part of the general culture war. What you were saying that he was effectively on the ballot without being on the ballot. Um, I think that's meaningful. And then I think I know I got to throw this one, uh, this, this log on the fire. I think it effectively ended Tucker Carlson's career at Fox news. I, I, I really, I really think that the, the flaming out of the Trump candidates, but also the Tucker Carlson uh, endorsed candidates, uh, the the Murdochs, they like winners. And I I think it's hard to tell the story of whatever happened there in that building um, without there being a line drawn from the result of that election and the most uh, popular, the most watched conservative commentator uh, getting the boot. So I can't really think of another midterm election you know, other than 1994, that would that would seem to have just factors like that 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 seemed fairly significant. So I, I think that's a good point about you said the culturalization, or, or however exactly you want to put that. Whatever bullshit that, pretentious term I came up with. Yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying, and it, <laughs> yeah. it actually it, it works because I, I think of it this way: Yeah, politics got nationalized in the last generation, in the last 30 years. The, the, ironically, the Speaker of the House, who's a big uh, a part of the story in my podcast in, in the eighties was a Democrat tip O'Neill from Massachusetts who knew, you know, picked this fight with on the house floor that one of those moments that really helped Newt uh, move forward. Tip O'Neill's famous saying was all politics is local. This is tip yes. O'Neill born in 1912 who came up in like, you know, the ward healer system of, uh, of uh, North Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and, you know, he would go back to events in his district and he would literally know everybody's name. I mean, yeah, that was the, that was the model, the pre-television, pre-media model, and it worked for him. And and, and Newt obliterated that um, and symbolized the obliteration of that, and it, it has been nationalized ever since. But I think, yes, 22 gets to, it's not, it, it's cultural, it's culture war. It's the culture war that shapes, yeah. you know, you, you decide if you're team red or team blue. I think you can just, a lot of people will justify it. They'll kind of work backwards, Yeah. you know, and, and they'll, they'll, We'd like to say it's because, oh, the position on this issue, the position on that issue. But I think at our core, um, we're tribal creatures, and at our core, we're kind of we're kind of pulled toward one party or the other, toward one team or the other, based on something cultural, based on cultural feelings, yeah. cultural attitudes that we have. And then once you you're with this team, you're with that team. You look at the other team, and you define yourself by being against their cultural politics. 
So I, I, I and it, so 22 is interesting because one thing that it showed is um, we talk about this this transformation where college educated voters, particularly college educated white voters, used to be a Republican constituency a long time ago, and are now increasingly not just Democratic but becoming dominantly for the Democrats. They are that group demographically has long been the most among the most likely to turn out in elections, not just presidential, but just any election. So it used to be an advantage for Republicans. It's now an advantage for Democrats. And that group was what what binds that group together? What's made them more Democratic? What got them so motivated in 22? Um, yeah, I mean, look, every uh, most people will say the Dobbs decision. I I I that's a different topic, I guess. I have some doubts mm. on that one, actually. Um, wow. I think it's much more Trump. You're I think it's very recent. You're a Dobbs denier. No. <laughs> here's here's why I would say it. Here's yeah. what I would say. It. I, I I look at I'll give you one state that's that's an example of this, um, where I think the cultural factor that motivated those college-educated voters and that helped Democrats in 22 was Trump, Trumpism in January 6th, and democracy in general, what they perceive as demo- the threats to democracy, versus Dobbs. Georgia. Georgia's my example, mm. um, because you had a marquee governor's race, Brian Kemp, the Republican, against Stacey Abrams, the Democrat. That had been a close race, a rematch of a race from 2018 that was decided by 50,000 votes. Brian Kemp won it. Stacey Abrams famously refused to officially concede it. Um, And then they have the rematch in 2022. You also have a marquee Senate race in 2022 in Georgia, where Raphael Warnock, uh, who won the special election um, January 5th, 2021, ironically enough, um, up against the Trump-picked candidate, the celebrity from the 80s, the UGA star running back, Herschel Walker. Now, Herschel Walker, so the Dobbs decision comes down in the middle of 2022. Herschel Walker is going to be the Republican candidate for the Senate in Georgia. And Brian Kemp is going to be the Republican candidate for governor of Georgia. Keep in mind that Brian Kemp faced in the primary in 2022 in Georgia a Trump-backed challenge from a former United States senator, David Perdue. Trump recruited David Perdue to run because he thought that Kemp had sold him out on you know, legal challenges to the Georgia vote in 2020. Kemp signed off on Biden's victory in Georgia. He didn't fight it. He didn't go along with Trump's rhetoric about how it was all polluted with with corruption. And Trump, absolutely inexcusable in Trump's mind. So Trump wants to run the guy out of office. And Trump goes to war with him. And Trump gets a sitting congressman, Jody Heiss, to give up his seat in Georgia and challenge the Republican secretary of state in that same primary in Georgia for the same reason. And Mm. Kemp wins the primary by 50 points. Secretary of the state wins the primary easily. So now we're in a general election where the Republican governor has gone toe to toe with Donald Trump and won over January 6th issues. And the Republican Senate candidate is handpicked by Donald Trump because he goes along with Trump on, on 2020 and everything else. And in the middle of all this, the Dobbs decision comes down. And of the two candidates, Kemp and Walker, Based on the Dobbs decision, the one who has actual influence over abortion policy in Georgia is Kemp, is the governor. This is now a state issue. That's what that's what this um, that's what the Supreme Court ruling has done. And Kemp endorses the six week ban. Herschel mm. Walker does, too. They both have the same position on abortion. One of them wins by 10 points. That would be the guy who's actually in position to do something about it in Georgia. And one of them loses. So I think that the, 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 the defining difference between Kemp and Walker in Georgia was that the kind of voter I'm describing, the traditionally Republican suburbanite, college-educated, 
who's been drifting towards the Democrats and is really appalled by Trump was okay with Kemp because Kemp had shown independence from Trump. Yeah. And was not okay with Walker because Walker was attached at the hip to Trump. If the differentiator yeah. was not abortion. I, to me, if the differentiator was abortion, Stacey Abrams and her campaign did everything they could to make that race about abortion. And she lost by 10 points instead of two points. So yeah. I, I, there's other examples in other states, but that's why I think, I think I consider Trump a cultural issue. So I think you're, when I, when I agree with you on the culturalization, yeah. I do, because I think Trump is ultimately a, a question of culture. And, um, but I think he's the, he was the driving cultural force that the, those, you know, college educated suburbanites were revolting against and were ultra, ultra motivated to vote against in uh, 2022. It's a great point. It reminds me of something that Iglesias said, I'm just paraphrasing it. And I guess we're, it's not even going to be pertinent if Trump wins, but from the Democrat perspective, a primary opponent who beats Trump and secures the nomination is a terrifying, terrifying political force to fight if you're a Democrat, because they will have signaled to the moderate that they're a moderate just because they were against Trump and that they beat Trump in a fight. And they could pass the most conservative legislation in history by far and still be seen as a moderate just because of that, just because Trump is is the cultural issue, which I think is, I think that's true. I mean, we're not going to actually see it happen, it seems. But yes, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, that was the that was the promise. I, I talked with Newt a bit about this in that interview um, for the podcast. He was that was conducted three weeks after the election in 2022, and he was processing the results. And it was interesting because he had not formulated any conclusions at that point. He was definitely mm -hmm. curious about the possibility that Trump had run his course as a force, um, but that Trumpism would live on. And he talked about the possibility that Ron DeSantis was Trumpism without Trump. And that was, that was where the Republican Party was going. But when I pressed him to say, you know, is that where you're going? He he didn't want to make any conclusions yet. I think because he's somebody mm -hmm. who has seen, you know, Trump, Trump's political obituary written 100 times since 2015 and every single time it's been, you know, premature. Um, and then fast forward to, I'm going to say, six weeks ago, Gingrich gave an interview, I forget where, and he basically said, these primaries are pointless. The party wants Trump. Let's get behind Trump. Mm -hmm. So he's reached his conclusion on that. And the idea of, you know, um, finding the candidate who ideologically could, could you know, probably better deliver the Trump platform yeah. than Trump could, because there'd be a rigor and a discipline there and there'd be a, a, a strategic kind of element to it all. Um, but he's decided that, that ultimately what sells is Trump himself. I'm fascinated by just the game theory that the that both of the parties have found themselves in where uh, their candidates, the candidates that will breeze to the nomination, uh, both seem to be uh, suboptimal for actually winning. And yet nobody can nobody can get the party off the train tracks. Nobody can do anything about it. Um, I can't think of any historical example. Do you have a, any historical example that uh, is anything like this situation? <laughs> well, I don't know. If it's, you know, it's it's. To our 1994 theme, I can think of the, the Virginia Senate election in 1994, where the Democrats nominated a candidate, Chuck Robb, he was the incumbent senator, who had poisonously negative um, poll numbers and had been caught in 
several scandals um, uh, during his tenure, running against the Republican nominee Oliver North, the Iran Contra figure, yeah. um, who I just you know. So the only person in the world Oliver North could have beaten was Chuck Robb, and the only mm-hmm. person in the world Chuck Robb could have beaten was Oliver North, mm-hmm. and neither for a brief moment that was a four-way senate race actually because there was th- these other political figures in virginia saw that there was such disgust for the two uh, two major party candidates doug wilder the former governor ran he dropped out at the end and supported rob and that's probably why rob ended up winning by three points in that race there was another republican moderate republican marshall coleman who ran stayed in and got uh you know i think 12 percent of the vote in the end but that was like a legitimate four-way senate race through Columbus Day, I would say, um, in 1994. And it's interesting that I do think back on it a little bit because I do look at the polls that show how badly the average voter says they don't want a Trump-Biden rematch. I look at the polls that show RFK, Mm. you know, sometimes high single digits, sometimes mid-double digits. I've even seen over 20% in some polls. I'm not quite sure where to peg his support right now other than to say it is higher than you would normally see. Than we've seen. It's higher than we've seen in 30 years, Ross Perot, 92, for yeah. an independent candidate at this point. I see the possibility of this no-labels group actually attaining 50-state ballot access, which is a huge, huge undertaking. I see Joe Manchin flirting with maybe being open to that nomination. And I think back to that Virginia Senate race, and, and I say, is it impossible we could have a three- or four-way race, um, you know, here, where it's, you know, you've got, a second or if you had a third or fourth candidate who's actually polling like, you know, double digits. Um, yeah. cause there was some, you know, Clinton versus Trump in 16, you know, the libertarians did their best ever. It was still like 4% and, you know, but I mean, could you legitimately have, you know, independence to attract 10 to 20% of the vote in this thing? I'm, I'm not close to that possibility. It's a strange landscape. I saw you recently on television talking about, Biden's strength in a swing state is positively correlated with how old and white that swing state is. Uh, That's a strange thing for a Democratic uh, candidate, but that is, I guess, what the uh, data bears out. Yeah, the state I I had in mind in particular was Wisconsin. You know, Trump state in 2016, Biden state in 2020, barely. And you've seen this raft of swing state polling that's shown Trump leading in, in some cases by big margins in these swing states, but not in Wisconsin. And Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know, is almost 90 percent white. And it is these these aging, you know, um, Midwest, upper Midwest states, these aging populations. Um, that's that's a, you know, become a Democratic, friend, a very Democratic uh, friendly group. Um, and I think the big question in 24 is um, how much is Trump showed growth with non-white voters in 2020. And with Hispanics in particular, Republicans held those gains in 2022. They didn't build on them, but they held the gains that Trump made in 2020. And now we're seeing indications in the polling that among younger and less engaged non-white voters, when I say less engaged, I mean, they weren't voting in special elections in 2023. Mm -hmm. They weren't voting in the off-year Virginia state legislative elections. Um, But there's a good chance they'll be voting in the presidential election next year. Those voters are much more receptive to Trump, um, and that if they vote in, if they start voting that way, Trump has the potential um, to run up numbers of non-white voters that have really been unthinkable for Republicans for 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 decades. 
Um, and that's not to say he's going to win the non-white vote. This is not to say he's going to win the black vote, anything like that. But like if he got 20 percent of the black vote, that would be the first time in 64 years a Republican candidate has gotten 20 percent of the black vote. Richard Nixon in 1960, you know, being the last one. And, and back then, you know, millions of blacks couldn't even vote because Jim Crow laws were still in effect in, in the South. That's how far back we're talking here. So it would be, you know, even that kind of a game. Um, could be seismic um, in, in some of these states. That makes a lot of sense. We'll end on this. We'll end on this. Um, there is this photo, famous photo slash meme of Rob Lowe at a football game uh, wearing a hat that just says NFL on I've it. Seen it yeah. um, is that how you approach politics? I, you know, we, we talk about the tribalization and how everybody, everybody is of a tribe. I, I remember when you were reading out early on election night 2022 how DeSantis had taken Miami Dade and uh, everybody else on the panel at, at NBC looked sick. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out to be a pretty good night for them. In that moment, in that moment, they feared disaster. Um, how do you emotionally relate to the results? Are you just kind of in it for the juice? Do you, you know, care a lot as to who wins? Uh, what is the internal Kornacki when it comes to these things? I'm, I, I'm trying to sort all the, the sort of big questions we're kind of grappling with here and, and, and throwing around. Um, it, to me, an election night is, wow, we finally get some answers. And, mm. you know, so it's like, Sometimes I liken it to the old, this is maybe a totally dated reference, but the Polaroid pictures, if people remember yeah. those, you know, you, you take the picture, it spits it out, you, you have to wave it in the air, and about two minutes later, you just watch as the picture slowly takes shape, and suddenly you can see everybody in it and what they're wearing. And um, That's what an election night is like for me, watching that picture develop. And I, I just find it fascinating, because it starts answering questions we've been asking simultaneously it starts posing new questions that we never thought were on the table but this the election's telling us are on the table like in 2020 you know watching trump make those big gains um in south texas in miami dade and you're like whoa the, the hispanic vote really moved here this is um yeah. this is something interesting to watch and then that, that set the stage for holy cow desantis is not just going to win miami dade this is this is a you know 2.7 million people. Hillary Clinton won it by 35 points county. And here's DeSantis going to win it by double digits. I mean, I just, to me, that's not a, a an expression of um, I'm for one team or against another team. I'm just, I am fascinated by that movement and trying to understand yeah. it. You know, it's fascinating to me. And just in my lifetime of following politics, I've, I've seen, first election I can remember, you know, California was a core Republican state and West Virginia was a core Democratic state. I've yeah. seen that change in my lifetime. So yeah. I, I'm just fascinated by it. And I know that, you know, it's it's like a soap opera too. You're you're gonna get answers on election night, but you're never gonna um you're gonna leave with a new set of questions. The answers aren't gonna be permanent, but um I'm just always interested in I, I just you know, I find um there's so much talk, so much discussion in the lead up to an election, and I, I find it satisfying to to actually get real meaningful numbers. Um, to try to understand them, to try to find the patterns, to try to find what the story is. Um, I, I say that every four years, there's like a family photo of America that's taken. That's the election. Mm. Um, when you get 100, 120, 160 million people voting um, in the same race, um, you really can start to tell a story of America in that moment. 
Um, and what really gets fun, I guess, as you get older, at least, is when you live through six or seven of these, you, you can really kind of see how the pictures evolved. You, you can remember how the picture has, has, has sort of changed through the um, uh, one four-year period at a time after another. And, and I'm just, I'm endlessly fascinated. So yeah, I guess, um, and I also, at a practical level, what I do to do what I'm describing real time on the air, I, I can't be cheering yeah. for a team. Because of my credibility is gone. I see it. You know, I mean, I, 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 there's, there's folks out there. Everybody's, everybody's a pundit in some way. And I get it. And that's fine. Um, but I definitely see election analysts who are clearly on one side or the other. And it becomes clear that, that they're, they're giving you, uh, you know, the best version for their side, the worst version for the other side. Mm. And I, it, I can't be seen doing that because I think you lose your credibility the second, um, the second it's revealed you're cheering for a team. Mm, I think I, I completely relate. Um, not so much. I don't have to actually hide anything about anything, not that part, but the part before it about just being fascinated by whatever the, the answers are. I mean, speaking of Florida, some of the early vote totals, I think in 2020 suggested what happened, uh, that, that Trump was going to win because Florida for reasons that are arcane probably has a more revealing way of doing their early voting than, than some other States. And Florida has been typically a bellwether. Um, and, you know, if you win Florida, you win it all. But no, you know, we learned that, no, something different has happened. And Florida has broken off from its bellwether status. And, you know, people talk about these things, Steve, as though they're so obvious. And they, they act as though it was presage. Like, oh, yeah, well, of course, Florida's a red state. And it's only been getting redder. And then you go, why? And they go, uh, <laughs> there's not necessarily a satisfying answer. And yet you see these big shifts in the population where, you know, a state is flipped and it just starts going in the yeah. direction of one party or the other party. I find that all totally fascinating. I can't explain why, but, um, I'm very interested in it. And it's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I so enjoy uh, the work you do. And, uh, you know, I wish you a good uh, election season. And is there anything that you want to, you don't need us to plug what you're doing. You're out there, you're on the, the TV, but uh, is there anything you want to plug or want to make us aware of uh, that is imminent? Uh, no, just look, January 15th, Iowa. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, I, I literally, uh, I think it's right in front of me here. Uh, <laughs> this is no good on a podcast, but I can show you. This is what I spent the last couple of days starting to put together. It's my big 99-county uh, map. And I've got, um, there's like four stats I want to track for each county. I want to be able to internalize them. I want to, so that's what I'm spending the next six weeks doing. New Hampshire, I feel a little bit better about only because I grew up five miles from New Hampshire. So I have mm. more of a built-in, um, you know, knowledge of the state and its politics and its regions and all of that but uh yeah I'm, yeah I'm iowa 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 for uh for most of the rest of this year when i'm, when I'm not losing money on horses we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about horse racing next podcast we might even talk about how you've uh you've shed your accent that i could hear in the tapes of 15 year old you on your your podcast <laughs> you know speaking to that knowledge of new hampshire and you know how, how that all happened and uh would love to have you back and Thanks so much, man. And uh, we will be looking forward to whatever you have, whatever you have for the nation about the nation. Nah, thanks a lot, Ethan. I really enjoyed this.